Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Adam Hamilton. Adam is the senior pastor of the 20,000-member Church of the Resurrection located in the Kansas City area. It's the largest and most influential United Methodist congregation in the United States. He's a leading voice for reconciliation and church renewal and the author of 25 books. His most recent book is Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. It's a great read. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Adam Hamilton. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be with you, Scott. Thank you so much. So you've written a great book, Unafraid living with courage and hope in uncertain times. Do you ever fear, you're, yeah, fear, right? Are you ever worried about a title like Unafraid? Or people are like, is he really unafraid? Is it, is it like when Trump goes, no collusion? Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> it's the first reaction. Is this guy really unafraid? Exactly. Well, you know, what's interesting is unafraid for me doesn't mean without fear. It means that you live, to, you know, you press through your fear. So in the book, I talk about the fact that fear is really a good gift. Uh, we're meant to be afraid sometimes. It's what protects us. It's what keeps us safe. Our brains are hardwired for fear. The challenge, of course, is that we often fear things we don't need to fear, or we exaggerate fears, or we allow fears to paralyze us. And so you know, in the book, several times I mentioned, you know, it's not that you're going to live with no fear at all. We need fear. It's just that we want to fear the right things, and we want to allow fear to, to do what it's supposed to do, and that is to move us to action. And there are a whole host of things that we simply fear that we shouldn't be fearing, that we've exaggerated the fears. And so the book really aims to try to help people be able to live with courage and hope despite their fears, not to be completely fearless, not to be completely without fear. So, you know, I have fear. Everybody has fear. And, and, uh, but the key is to be able to press through that. Yeah. You know, as I, as I was finishing the book, I, I was thinking, you know, you could look at this as a book <clears throat> about fear and anxiety and, and how that affects this individual and culture. You could also look at it, it reads almost like an introduction to Christian spirit, Christian faith or spirituality through the lens of something like fear. Because you really talk about the whole range of human experience from success and failure to race and crime and and end of life issues and, and you know, change that you just did living with change and dynamism. And things like that. So really, it, it seems like a pretty holistic a, a book about faith through the lens of fear. Yeah, that's a really perceptive comment, Scott. So it, we are looking at the human condition and the broad range of the human condition. And fear is just a really foundational part of who we are as human beings. It always has been. And whether it's fear of the other or you know, fear of failure or fear of what other people will think about us, that's just been a part of who we are. And then, of course, the classic fears of death and aging and those things. And so, in a sense, it is. We look at the human condition, and then we're saying, okay, so how do we address this part of the human condition, this dimension of the human condition? And underneath that is, uh, you know, is a, is a view, viewpoint that I bring to it from a Christian perspective, you know, Christian spiritual perspective, Christian theological perspective. But the book I, I wrote really aimed not just for Christians. I, I mentioned in there, you know, now there's, if you're not a Christian, there are certain parts of this that you'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I think you're going to find these things will be helpful no matter what. But of course, my hope is that as people read it, they go, well, you know, maybe there's something to this Christian thing too. There's a story in, in the middle of the book, you're talking about fear of acceptance and, you know, earned insecurities. And you tell the story how you're standing in the back of the church, as you usually do after you preach. And a woman came up to you and said, that sermon sucked. I, I, I'm ashamed that you're my pastor today. 
uh, and, and you're like, I, part of me wants to say, like, I'm ashamed to be your pastor. <laughs> what was the sermon about that? Day? I was thinking, what was he preaching about? Does he remember? <laughs> I don't even remember. I think I actually think it was a sermon on sexuality, and we were talking about uh, human sexuality, and it might have been transgender and and gay and lesbian. It was a it was a series of sermons I was doing on uh, the challenges we have with sexuality today in terms of our relationships and, and how do we have healthy relationships. And, and I think I was talking about, you know, the fact that we're a church that welcomes everybody. And I think she was fr- coming from a more conservative place and she was upset by that. And, um, you know, was telling me, I mean, I remember distinctly her standing there after worship and, and looking at me and, you know, just saying, I, I just can't tell you how disappointed I am that you're my pastor today. And, you know, when you get that, when somebody comes to you and you've just finished preaching, it'd be like somebody right after one of your programs saying, I just think that was the worst program. I'm so disappointed that, you know, <laughs> and so I found myself like, whoa, okay. And, uh, and my initial reaction was, well, as I said in the book, well, I'm just really disappointed that you are a part of this church. I'll go <laughs> find another church. <laughs> let of transfer. Course, Here you go. Exactly. Don't let the door hit you the backside as you walk out. But, but, you know, then at the same time, I'm like, okay, you can't say that. And you sort of take it and go, okay, I need to figure out where was she coming from? What was happening in that moment? You know, uh, so it's interesting. There are a lot of times, you know, all of us have those things. When somebody criticizes you, our natural reaction, sometimes we, we begin to feel like, well, maybe I really am a failure. Maybe I am, you know, or maybe I got it wrong, or maybe everybody feels that way. You know, so those are some of the fears, our insecurities that come in. And then there's also this desire to lash back out, you know, to uh, respond to that with anger and, and to you know, try to get even. And you were, when you, you've been a leader in the, it's called the reconciliation movement, right? United Methodist Church. Well, there's a reconciling congregations movement in mainline churches. And I'm not a leader in that. I have had interaction with the folks in that group. Um, I'm really somebody who's been aiming at trying to figure out how do you hold a diverse denomination together? So we have conservatives and progressives and everybody in between. Methodists tend to be a group that's really, you know, somewhere in between all of that. And, uh, and trying to hold those sides together. So, you know, I come out left of center on human sexuality and welcoming people and believe me, God looks at gay lesbian people and says, you're my, you're my children and I care about you. And, and, and looks at, uh, this issue and these people with a great deal more grace than what maybe the Bible reflects in its handful of verses speaking about this. At the same time, I understand where people are coming from who are more conservative. And I think within the church, there's room for a church where people are wrestling with this together at different paces and places. And so, yeah, I would say uh, I'm trying to hold this thing together as opposed to watching our denomination divide over something that I think 20 years ago, 20 years from now, we will not be really wrestling with anymore. I think we will have worked through it. That's got to not be a a mass opinion, like a popular opinion, a tribalized culture. I mean, we're, we're just increasingly siloed, right? And tribal inside the church, outside the church. I mean, that's sort of that's a tough pitch to sell, right? Like, hey, let's be a non-tribal church, <laughs> right? Right. Well, and, but what I find is, so you know, this is the issue in mainline churches today. Unfortunately, it is you know, it, it is it consumes us, and part of this has to do with how we read the Bible, how we look at the Bible, whether the Bible is, uh, yeah. Well, well, everybody looks at the Bible with more nuance. You know, we all look at things in the Bible and say, yeah, I don't know what to do with that part of it, but but it becomes an issue about biblical authority and these kind of things. And so as I think about this, I think most people, I mean, most of our mainline churches, you know, we have folks in our congregation who are 
you know, a little more conservative, a little more progressive, or a lot more progressive and a lot more conservative, they've learned to live with each other. They, they're in the same Sunday school classes. They're in the same Bible studies. They love each other's kids. They, you know, they're, they care about each other. So we've learned to do that at a local church level, at least our churches have, where, where people can have dis, you know, differing opinions. What we're trying to say at the United Methodist Church is, is it possible for us to have differing views about this, you know, different ways of interpreting scripture. We're going to agree that we're going to love everybody, but we're going to have differing ways of interpreting scripture and we can stay one church and we can codify our disagreements. We can allow those left of center to have one way of, you know, to allow same-sex marriage, those who are right of center. Nope, we're not going to do same-sex marriage and to still be one church. And, you know, I've been saying we can, and there are folks on both sides on the left and the right who say, no, we can't. I can't be in a church with people who don't see the scripture this way. They have to see it my way or else I can't. You know, I can't be a part of that with them. So it is a challenging, you know, it's a challenging time. And this is true in the broader society as well. So if you look at American society, we're divided about like the United Methodist churches. Yeah. I wonder, is fear at the root of some of that on both sides in the denomination like the United Methodist Church? Are there fears at play that, that, that make it hard for people to imagine a church that includes that amount of diversity? Yeah, I think there is. There are a number of fears at play. And fear is al- almost always at play in almost every situation in our lives somehow. So I think part of the fears are, you know, some would talk about the slippery sliding slope. Okay, so I'm going to let the progressives do this, but then how long until they're going to make me do it, even though I don't agree with it? So there's that kind of fear that I'm going to be forced to do something I disagree with. There's, of course, a fear like, okay, I fear this isn't what God's will is. And so God's going to be angry if I, you know, if I'm a part of a church where they're saying it's okay. And on the left, it's, I think God's will is that everybody have, you know, have the ability to be married. And I think God's going to be angry if, you know, or I'm, I'm, I'm letting, you know, I'm not being faithful to who I am if I stick around in a church with people who don't agree with that. And so there's a, I think there's a host of fears. There's, you know, there's fears about the people in my own congregation. Will they, you know, will we, will our church divide? Will people leave the church if we end up here or there? And so, yeah, I think, I think, I think there's a lot of things we would do differently if we weren't afraid. In the book, you, you have an acronym for fear. You say, fear is false events appearing real. And you're, you have a sort of, you have a, a, a faith acronym too. Uh, F is face your fears with faith. E is examine your assumptions in light of the facts. A is attack your anxieties with action. And R, release your cares to God. Are you naturally a good acronym preacher? Like if people go to your churches, there, there are a lot of good acronyms. Because those are good acronyms. Yeah, no, I'm actually not. And the first one, uh, you know, the idea of fear as being false events appearing real is something, you know, I've, I've seen variations of that all over the place. When you start studying fear, you see that. And of course, not all fear is that, right? There are fears that are real fears and uh, not false events, but they're the things we're supposed to be afraid of. So again, our brains are wired to protect us. Fear is a good gift. It's meant to keep us safe. But the things you know, when we talk about the fear that we're not supposed to have, it is false events appearing real or things seeing, seeming more dangerous than they really are. Uh, the acronym for face, you know, for fear that's positive, and I, you know, I wanted people to have something they could maybe commit to memory when they're dealing with their fears is one that you know, I think I created. There, it's probably bits and pieces of it came from other people. But I, I, I don't usually do this, but I thought if I could have some way for people to be able to think about four steps for dealing with their fears, and, and you don't do all four of these with every kind of fear, but but basically, they capture how human beings have dealt with fear throughout the history of humankind. And they also capture, in many ways, what counselors and therapists recommend today. So, you know, we might walk through those a little bit and, and maybe unpack them. Would that be all right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that'd be great. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you think about facing your fears and it's facing your fears with a bias of hope really is a good way to think about it. Cause this faith that I talk about here is not necessarily religious faith. It's just, it's just the idea that, you know, typically most things are not as bad as they seem. We're able to survive things we don't think we can survive. It's it's generally going to be okay. That's not always true, but it's generally true. And so, yeah, so when I think you, when about you talk this, about hope in the book too. It it seems to me that it's it's different than optimism or, or pe- pessimism. I mean, it's a different yeah. Like both the op, you could be an optimist and not have a lot of hope, or a pessimist and be full of hope, right? It's not a. Tem- right. I think when people say hope, they think of it as a temperamental thing. But you're talking yeah. about something that transcends temperament. I think so. It's it's a decision of the mind that says, and, and you know what I find interesting, I can, you know, the idea that the worst thing is going to happen requires as much emotional and mental energy as, as thinking, you know what, I don't think the worst thing is going to happen. I, I think it's probably going to be okay. We're going to survive this. And, and what's interesting is the older we get, the less we fear. And I think part of the reason for that is the people who fear the most, who, who struggle the most with fear and anxiety were young adults, those who are 18 to 35. And, I, and the people who struggle least with it were those who are over 75 and in our survey with 2,400 people we surveyed. And I think what happens is over time, life teaches us that hardly ever does the worst thing happen, you know, or even if the worst thing happens, we still survive it. You know, we're still okay. So I think about, you know, when I think about facing your fears with a bias of hope, I think about Eleanor Roosevelt, who once said, you gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You're able to say to yourself, I live through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. And that's the idea behind facing your fear with faith is you come, come at it and you go, okay, here's this thing I'm afraid of. I'm going to really, I'm going to face it. I'm not going to hide from it. I'm not going to bury my head in the sand. I'm going to, I'm going to take it on. I can take steps toward that fear. And, and uh, therapists talk about this as extinction. It's, it's, you can, you learn fear from your experiences in life. You can unlearn fear by facing it, stepping into the things you're afraid of and realizing, Hey, I survived that. I, I Maybe I can survive even more than that. I think about it as an example. So it's like when you're a kid and you're in the swimming pool and you look at the high dive and your kids are, you know, your friends are saying, Hey, jump off the high dive, you know, and you think you want to do that. Well, you know, you got to work up the courage to that and you got to take steps towards it. So for me, when I was a kid, I had to jump off the side of the pool first in the deep end. And I realized, Hey, I survived that. I'm okay. I think I'll try the low dive and you get on the low dive, you know, and it's kind of scary because you're jumping three or four feet down and, and, uh, but you know, you finally work up the courage to do that and you go, I survived that. That wasn't so bad. I didn't drown and you get back out of the pool and that's time to go to the high dive. Now, the first time I got up to the high dive, it's so high that it was terrifying. And I went back down the stairs. I mean, I was one of those kids that was just, you know, I don't care what anybody thought I went back. I'm not doing it. Come on, come on, you can do it. You know, and so the next time I go up there and I get up the top up to the top of the high dive and I'm thinking, I don't think I can do it. But then what I did is I got that on my hands and knees and I leaned over the edge of the, you know, I, I kind of grabbed hold of the the diving board. I looked ridiculous and I just let go and I survived that. And I thought, well, I think I could go up there and actually jump off. And so I did a cannonball off the next time. And all of a sudden I realized, man, this is fun. This is a blast. But the key is you've got to be able to face that fear, you know, and that's just a silly example of what we do as adults, but we've got to be able to face our fears. We take steps towards them. And therapists talk about this as as extinguishing our fears. So, you know, my daughter did this. uh, I describe it in the book. She took skydiving lessons and she didn't tell us as, you know, she was in college and she didn't tell her mom and I, which was really good. And she said, I decided that I needed to try to take on all my fears at once. And I thought of the scariest thing I could think of was jumping out of an airplane. And she said, you know, I took the lessons and I got up there and I jumped out of the airplane and it was terrifying at first. But by the time I got down, it was like, wow, you know, I faced death today. And I said, not today. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of that first step of that, you know, facing your fears with a bias of hope. You know, it's, it's 
generally things are not as bad as they seem. We can make it through these things. And, and I find, here's the thing, everything that's worth doing in life requires risk and it requires some measure of, you know, taking a chance. And if you never do anything that scares you, you end up missing out on all the best parts of life. That's true of getting married. It's true of having kids. It's true of changing careers. It's true of launching out into new career fields is if you are unwilling to take risks and face your fears with a bias of hope, you're going to end up with a life that's you know, missing out on a lot of the best parts of it. Yeah. And there are a lot of studies, right? They, they ask people, it, 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 they interview people that are in advanced age. They ask them, you know, what, what would you do differently? Like, no one says I would have taken less risks, right? right. Exactly it's all, right. It's all, and no one's like, I really wish I would have played it a lot safer. It's, yeah. it's almost uniformly, right? I wish I would have t- taken more chances. I wish I would have I would have gone after more opportunities. I wish I would have opened up more. <laughs> like people don't play like, "Hey, man, I should have really played it, played played tighter." You know exactly, exactly. And that's why I think this book is so important. In my mind, the, the idea, the topic is so important. Is that without taking risks, without learning how to, you know, live with courage and hope in the face of our fears, we're just going to miss out on so much. I have a. Uh, an idea that I teach leaders when I'm speaking on leadership across the country. It's a principle called discernment by nausea. And when you face, you know, a fork in the road, which we always, you know, we do this all the time. When organizations, businesses, churches, individuals face a fork in the road, there's almost always an easy path that's safe. And, you know, it doesn't make you, I mean, it's just is an easy path. And then there's a path that's harder, more difficult. It requires a measure of risk. Almost always the path that makes you a bit sick to your stomach is the path that you're meant to take. And, uh, and so that's, you know, that's that first step of facing your fears with a bias of hope. And again, it takes as much emotional, mental energy to imagine the best outcome as it does to imagine the worst outcome. So, you know, learning that practice of imagining the best has a profound impact on our lives. And that's just the first step of the four. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Andrew Stravitz, and Jennifer Underwood. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Yeah, it's interesting. I read a book this year. It was great. This it, guy was actually a guest on the podcast too, Alan Jacobs. And he wrote this great book on how to think a guide for turbulent times. And one of the things he says, you know, in, in this turbulent sort of tribal world, he, he says, suggests like name your repugnancies. 
like mm-hmm. like catalog the things you find repugnant. Yeah. So you know that when you encounter them, you not you might not really be thinking and discerning. You might just be reacting. And That's so I exactly feel like right. you're kind of saying, name these things that trigger you. Name the things yep. that trigger your nausea and the yuck factor. That because really, when 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 you're aware of that, you can work through it. If you if you realize that this is like what trauma therapists say, right? When you you talk in the book that there's some kind of body trigger, um, and you know trauma th- you teach you to identify it. So that, you know, okay, this is the PTSD. This is not something in front of me. This is this is the body memory kind of thing. Yeah, Scott, that's exactly right. This is exactly what this book is trying to aim at, especially in that first point. So there's a lot of things subconsciously, you know, there's things that are buried in our memory from childhood that, you know, somehow we had a bad experience that scared us uh, or, or information that people have given us that have, you know, that's, that leads us to be afraid. And part of that is to be able to name it and then to be able to face it. And so that's, you know, that, that's not the key to addressing all kinds of fear, but it certainly is a key to addressing some of the fears in our lives. The, the second one is attacking your anxiety or excuse me, is examining your assumptions in the light of the facts. And this I find is really important today, you know, so we have the amygdala, which is, you know, a built-in system for dealing with our fears. Uh, it, it, you know, responds almost instantaneously to perceived threats, but then you have your cognitive side of fear. That's the stuff that either your memories or the information that you put in your brain that says, these are things you should be afraid of. And we live in a time where people are constantly telling us what to be afraid of during the election season, which is when I decided to write this book, the 2016 election season, and I'm watching how you know, the rhetoric in the campaigns are talking about how we need to be afraid of immigrants. We need to be afraid of refugees. We need to be afraid of, I mean, there's a whole host of things we should be afraid of. And both the left and the right does this. They use fear in this way. The the 24 hour news, you know, that we've got, so we entertain ourselves with news and we're hearing these stories of things. And the reason why they make the news is because they're unusual or, you know, they're out of the ordinary, but our brain doesn't know that. If we hear you you quote someone in the book from CNN that said, basically she, it was a correspondent or someone from CNN that said they know this and they want you to be afraid all the time. Exactly. <laughs> like, like that's how, that's how the news gets rating. Like when people yep. are tranquil and relaxed and in Zen mode, they're not dialed into cable news. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, so this, this whole industry, you know, makes its living by making sure that we're constantly needing to t- be tuned in. So if we always need to be tuned in, there's gotta be something that's going to, that we got to say, well, this is either salacious enough or it's dangerous enough. We got to figure, you know, we got to, we got to listen in. And so that's, you know, all of that data is stirring around in our heads. And it's not just the news and the media, you know, preachers sometimes do this too, making people afraid. Sometimes it's people seeking to, you know, raise money. So I think about the medical industry, the medical research industry, and they're a wonderful group and I'm really grateful for what they do. But, you know, if you're going to stir people and motivate people to donate to your cause, then you've got to make sure that people think, or at least for many people, they're going to have to think, hey, this could happen to me. I need to, you know, or somebody I, I love. And so statistics, you know, can be played in a certain way as well. We talk about that in the book where, where things can sound more likely to happen to you than maybe they really are. So or, or you, you talk about crime too. Like you talk in the book about crime, how exactly crime, violent crime has gone so far down yeah. in the past decades. And yet our fear of it is still, it's, it's still sky high. I mean, right. that we, it's just, you know, the other thing you talk about in the book too, I think you quote Rick Wilson, the Republican strategist yeah. saying that basically like political, you know, consultants and stuff on both sides now fear is the easiest thing to manipulate on both sides exactly if you can That's if you exactly can right. whether it's the, on the right you know fear of the, the, the immigrants or guns taking around the left fear of you know the rights are fascist and you know that's how you really can work up voters 
Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you hear the tone of voice that the that the television ads take and the radio ads take. You know, they find somebody with that scary voice when they're talking about it. And they're very seldom talking about, you know, here's my vision for the future. Instead, they're talking about this other guy and what's wrong with him. And it, and if you vote for him, imagine how bad things would be. And, and so it's it, it's constantly playing on our fears. Absolutely. An example I wanted to give was uh, Alzheimer's. So anybody over 40 has had the experience of forgetting something. They forget their keys. They forget somebody's names. They, for, you know, they, they drive down the street and go, when did that building get built? I don't remember that. And everybody I know over 40 says, I wonder if I have early onset Alzheimer's, right? So, so if you're going to examine your assumptions in light of the facts, then you go, well, I wonder how many people do have early onset Alzheimer's. And, and when I did the research, it was 0.24% of people under 65 have, have early onset Alzheimer's. That means you're 99.76% unlikely to have early onset Alzheimer's. Well, once you know that, you go, okay, maybe I don't have to be so afraid of that. You know, that's highly unlikely that I have this. And as you mentioned, violent crime, you know, if you look to see the statistics, Americans are more afraid of crime than they've been in a very long time. And yet crime levels are down at the lowest since 1964. And so, you know, we're going out buying guns and security systems because we're afraid of crime. And yet the reality is very different from that. When you actually look at the FBI statistics and the Bureau of Justice statistics, you find that we are living at a time where we are more safe than since 1964. Yeah. That, yeah. It's, it's interesting to that, um, how it, looking at things in light of, of the facts, I, you know, that this sort of social media and the siloing and the, the kind of tribal tribalism, this kind of increases this, right? Because it gets harder to get at facts. That, that, right. that you, and it's interesting, right? Because I've read studies that the education oftentimes doesn't erode confirmation bias you get you you get more resources to practice confirmation bias so you know you get but you just get more sources i mean so this kind of so because because you're talking about like grappling with facts that kind of don't fit the anxious picture in your mind but like so often the tribes we run and just reinforce it right Oh, that's exactly right. With the internet, we have access to so much more information than we've ever had before. And then you've got to figure out, is this good information that I have? And you know, part of what I try to do, even with news sources, is I, I have on my phone, uh, giving me information on a regular basis, uh, news sources from both the right and the left. I'm trying to understand what is the left saying? What is the right saying? And, and then to take all of that information with a, a grain of salt, or at least to say, okay, I need to find out you know, what's the other side saying to counter that? And then to try to figure out where the truth is somewhere in between. If all I listen to is news sources on one side of the aisle and not the other, then I'm going to be scared of the other side. And so I think and when it comes to getting information, you know, you want to try to figure out what are the most trustworthy sources on any given bit of information. So like, you know, when it came to, to Alzheimer's, so I wanted to go to the Alzheimer's website. Okay, well, they're doing research in this area, so they might they might have a tendency to give me the, you know, a little more biased information, not biased, but, you know, reported in a certain way that would lead me to want to contribute. But I actually found that they gave me the greatest information to say, you probably don't have to be afraid of this yet. Now, when you get older, it, you know, the numbers rise some, but right now you don't have to be afraid of it. So I think checking that, you know, checking your sources and finding reputable sources, listening to people on both sides of the aisle can really be helpful. And then your, your next thing, right, is, at, is attack your anxieties with actions. Right. Because that's, I mean, that's what happens right often when we're anxious, uh, we get paralyzed. That's exactly right. We tend to, we tend to be, uh, we tend to avoid the things that make us anxious. So we avoid those things as opposed to heading towards them. And as we avoid them, we continue to allow the fears to sort of percolate in our minds. So I'll give you an example. Um, I had a health screening earlier this year and in that health screening, it said, you're, 
blood levels look bad. You're, you know, you're overweight. You've got you know, all these issues. And, uh, and I'm thinking, uh, okay, now I'm scared. Now I'm anxious about this. I've just written a book on fear and I'm anxious about this. What, what was my own medicine? You know, so this and, is my fear with writing unafraid, you know, like, you know, when you write the title, like, this guy really, is he, is he really unafraid? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not. That's why I wrote the book. <laughs> so, uh, so I thought, okay, well, what, what, what's the action, you know, what, what I'm supposed to do was well, I took a look at that. Okay. I have the right information and this is something I should be, I should have some level of fear about. I'm probably not going to die tomorrow, but it's, it's a serious issue. So attack your fears with, you know, attack your anxieties with action is, so I can do something about this. I'm not incapacitated from doing something about it. So I began to go on a Mediterranean diet. I began to exercise every day. And that was years of not doing that that led me to where I am. You know, but over the last few months, I have been losing weight. I've been exercising. I feel better. My numbers look better. And it's like, okay, I actually did something about it. I'm not afraid anymore about my health. I feel, I feel like I took action. And that's fear is meant to motivate us to action. So if we don't act then we continue to mull over these kind of things. If we do act, we find that the fear begins to dissipate. Financial fears. A lot of people are afraid about finances. So financial fears. So what do I have to do? I need to find out what do the numbers look like and what do I have to do to take steps towards that? Well, you start taking steps towards making sure you have enough for retirement or you start taking steps towards eliminating some of your debts or whatever it might be. And you find yourself easing the anxiety. And so this is just common sense. It's not rocket science. But most of us don't do this. We don't take the step to actually attack our anxieties with action. When we do that, we find things change. And your last one is related to faith, right? Yes, the release R. your cures to God. Yeah, Re- release, yeah, release your cures, cures to, God. to God. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I remind people, even if you're not a person of faith, long before there was Xanax and Zoloft, before we had medications that are supposed to calm our fears, there was prayer. I mean, this is what people have done throughout history. They have turned. They have had the idea that there is somebody bigger than they are. In the, in the universe, who is watching over them, who walks with them. Uh, every religious, you know, religious group has, has this idea that I'm not alone and that there's somebody else. And, and so when we look to the scriptures, you know, we find 140 times in the Bible, these words, don't be afraid. And almost always they're followed by this phrase, some variation of it, for I am with you. And I suggest in the book, it takes as much imagination to imagine the worst thing's going to happen as to imagine that the best thing's going to happen. It takes as much imagination to imagine that there's nobody else out there with you than to imagine that there's a God who actually holds you and keeps you. And I think about as an example of this that even non-religious people can, can relate to. Dr. King, uh, he was leading the uh, Montgomery bus boycott. And while he was doing that and, and serving as a pastor of a small church, he started getting death threats. One night, he's sitting in his kitchen at midnight, and the phone rings, and he's uh, and the voice on the other end says, "I'm going to kill you. I'm going to I'm going to destroy your home. I'm going to you know." I, I forget that that was basically a very threatening phone call, and he sits at the coffee area at this kitchen table by himself, and he just begins to pray. And he says, "God, I'm scared. I'm scared, and I can't do this anymore. I just can't. I'm I, I'm I'm too afraid." And he hears this voice saying, "You know, stand up for justice. Stand up for righteousness. You know, don't give up." And you think. Where would our world be today if Dr. King hadn't started praying sitting at his table in the, you know, in the kitchen and, and heard that voice saying, no, you can do this. You can do this. I mean, so because of that, he continued to move forward in leading the civil rights movement. For us, there's something about praying. And, you know, his favorite gospel hymn was Precious Lord, Take My Hand. And so, you know, the imagination, another word for that might be faith, right? We're not imagining something that doesn't exist. We're imagining something, at least that I believe does exist, that there is a God who is there walking with us, even through the valley of the shadow of death. 
so we need fear no evil, or through the fires or through the floods. And the and the promise of scripture isn't, well, everything's going to be fine and you're not going to have any, you know, there, there won't be hard times in your life. It's that I'm going to walk with you no matter what happens. And so in the, in the book, I also lay out uh, several spiritual disciplines that help us, you know, ways of praying where, you know, you take the scriptures and you pray the scriptures or, or Lectio Divina is a practice for reading scripture and allowing it to sort of sink down into your soul or breath prayers. There's a whole host of things that you can do. I even have an appendix with 31 scriptures, one for each day of the month dealing with fear that will help people to be able to find what, what Paul the Apostle describes as a peace that passes all understanding to guards our, guard our hearts and minds. So it's not that fear that faith by itself or you know the spiritual disciplines by themselves will conquer all fears, uh, but they do play an important role in helping us to be able to live with courage and hope in uncertain times. You've mentioned like the health scare. What what other things do you personally struggle with around fear and anxiety? Like what are the what are the recurring fears yeah. that you find? You know, I think throughout my life, uh, fear of failure. Uh, you know, so I started this church in 1990, and it's grown you know, to become a very large congregation. And at the same time, you know, I fear, okay, uh, you know, it, it, what if it, you know, what, what if it stops growing? What if there's not people still coming? What if, what if people decide not to come? You know, I, I'll preach sermons sometimes and they alienate some people. They, uh, you know, they're upset by something I've preached and they leave and you begin to think, well, what if everybody leaves? You know, you have this voice in your head that magnifies the fear. I mean, the likelihood is everybody's not going to leave, right? There's certain people who are grateful for that sermon, but instead, and this happened years ago, I had 800 people leave the church in one year over a sermon related to same-sex relationships and, and you know, my sense of God's compassion and mercy for people. This is back in 2004. So is that your record? Is that, you look back, well, the sermon where I got the most people out, 800, was this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was. It, <laughs> You're my top 10. So, you know, like one time I only got 300 out with that one, but 800 is yeah. the best I could do. Yeah, I can't say I've ever counted the rest, but that year I got email after email throughout the year from people who were just unsettled. Now, some of them came back over time, but, you know, we have, you know, at that time we had 16,000 members, but that's still 5% of your membership leave in one, you know, in one year. And they kind of dribbled out. And, and I found myself in a real crisis. You know, I began thinking, maybe I've blown it. Maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe, you know, maybe I, maybe there's somebody else. Maybe I misunderstood God's will. And uh, real, you know, in the middle of that, questioning myself, self-doubt, you know, fears about my own capacities for doing this. And, and so I would say, you know, most people at some point, you talk about a baseball player and, you know, they have a slump and they, and they, uh, they have, you know, several games in a row where they blow it, you know, or, or somebody who's a, you know, if they're a pitcher or you've got a, you know, a hitter who's not hitting and you begin thinking, maybe I'm not really that great of a baseball player after all, you know, maybe I've been faking it all this time. And I think there's, I think for almost everyone, there is some kind of fear related to that. And so, you know, for me, it, it was, uh, I think it was that kind of fear of people, you know, that, th- when you're successful at what you do, there's always a fear that people are going to figure out that you really aren't uh, that great at this. You know, you've just managed to fake it well all along. And so uh, I'd say that's probably, you know, that might be one of my great fears. I think when my kids were small and, and now I have a granddaughter, you know, I, I would have fears about their safety. And, and my youngest daughter, she's done all kinds of things that I would not be excited about her doing. You know, she's hitchhiked across the country and these kind of things. And I'm like, I remember going to the bus station when she and a friend were leaving at midnight at the bus station, they were going across the country with, you know, just backpacks. And I, I drove away and I was, I was sobbing as I drove away. I'm like, God, I love her so much. I don't want anything to happen to her. And I know all these things that could happen to my daughter, you know, people rape and murder and all these things. Cause I've done funerals for people who were murdered. I've been with people who were raped. And, and I finally just had to say, okay, God, I have no control here. I can't, I, I can't go with her on the trip and I can't stop her. So I just have to turn this over and I'm going to have to trust that no matter what happens, 
you're going to be with her hmm. and somehow she's going to be okay. You know, and, and in the end of the book, I talk about, you know, this idea, Frederick Buechner said this, the worst thing is never the last thing in the light of Easter, which we're getting ready to celebrate in the light of Easter. The worst thing is never the last thing. Even death doesn't get to have the final word. And so if you believe that, then, then you can look at even, you know, because I know just praying is not going to keep my daughter from not being hurt. I've buried teenagers. I've buried young adults. But even if the worst thing happens, she belongs to God and she's going to be in his arms, you know, and, and that's where I, when I could finally do that and just turn that over, then I wasn't anxious anymore about her. I mean, I still worried about her some, but I wasn't, you know, so I would say that's another example of the kind of fears that, you know, that I carry with me. The day before we started Church of the Resurrection, 20, 28 years ago, I stayed up all night long fretting over my sermon. You know, I, I, I was like, I'm afraid that I, you know, people won't come back because I won't get this writer. I preached President Obama's second inaugural. Uh, it, it was the National Prayer Day right on the first day of office. Uh, this happens every every presidential election. And so the president, the vice president, and the whole members of Congress, all these members of the cabinet are all sitting out in front of me at the National Cathedral. And the night before, all I could think of was, you know, how embarrassing, you know, what, what would happen if I just totally blew it? You know, I mean, that's just a part of the regular fears that we carry with us. Did Obama and, say you nailed it? Actually, he was very complimentary. You know, afterwards he said, "Hey, that was awesome. Please, I want to copy the manuscript." I, I saw it. he invited me to the White House a couple of years later, and he said, "You know, I want you know how much I appreciated what you what you said." I mean, it was, uh, you know, it, it turned out okay, but I was, you know, I, I was afraid it wouldn't as I was leading up to it. If with you're, you're a pastor of you know this is the largest United Methodist Church right in the country, right? right. Is there a lot of professional jealousy? I mean, because, you know, mainline denominations aren't doing great, right? And so if you're the guy that's, that's church is thriving, I mean, I, although I guess they're not telling you most people. <laughs> they are. Oh. I mean, if you leave the room, most of them, I would hope. Uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting over the years, uh, uh, you know, people, there, there would be people would say or do things. I, I, here's what happens. Like I've had people come up and go, hey, I just need to apologize to you. I'm like, well, why? Well, I used to say all these bad things about you, you know, I didn't know you and I would just, I would just say these things about you. And, and, uh, I'm really sorry because now that I know you, I know you're not that way, but it really bothered me how, you know, how much the church had grown and my church wasn't growing. And I had to come up with some reason why that was happening, you know? And so it, it used to happen more. I think, uh, you know, my hope is if people get to know who I am, uh, you know, I, I try to actually be the person that I, you know, that I'm, you know, that I, that my people believe I am. I, you know, I want to try to care for people and encourage them. But undoubtedly, you know, there are times where uh, everybody has that. You know, we all, when there's somebody else who's doing something and it's going better than what we're doing, it, it's hard not to, you know, have our own insecurities come out of that. And then the capacity to sometimes gossip or talk about people in ways that aren't complimentary. And, and so for me as a pastor over the years, I'm like, I just understand that's how it works. And I try not to, not to let that bother me. Yeah, it's interesting because the subtitle of your book is is living with courage and hope in uncertain times. But objectively, like the Stephen Pinkner just wrote this piece uh, in the New York Times a couple weeks ago. It was saying op ed piece, basically saying that, like kind of yay enlightenment. Look how much better the world is. Like you know, I mean, basically life expectancy, violence, all these all these things are. It, this is the best, safest time to be alive in the aggregate, right? And yet, is yep. and yet it, it is a time marked by tremendous chronic anxiety and uncertainty. Do you th is, do you think that's because we have so much information? You know, if in pre-modern times you don't. I mean, you know, people talked about the Lisbon earthquake and that earthquake how because of the printing press. All of a sudden, everybody heard about this tragedy and had this you know really different effect than other things because you don't you know in in most of pre-modern times you didn't know about every calamity you know every every tragic thing. Where now, I mean, again, it's the CNN thing. It's it's it's. 
it's fear porn. You know, it's just you, you just have it on on the loop all the time. Yeah, I really I do think that's uh, that's true. The statement, and and I include this in the book as well, that we are living in the safest time we've ever lived in. We we're living longer. I mean, there's been some back and forth, you know, slightly on on uh, you know longevity in the United States, but it's still we're living longer than we've ever lived. We're living healthier than we've ever lived. We have more resources than we've ever had. We have less to be afraid of. Less people, less Americans have died in the last 20 years in war than at any period, 20 year period in the history of our country. You know, crime is down and yet we're more fearful. And I do think it has to do with, again, uh, it's the news media. It is the information age that we live in. So we have access to information of what, you know, that this odd thing that's happened here or there around the world, uh, we hear it. And, you know, the old dictum from the news was if it bleeds, it leads, you know, if it's something that is catastrophic or it's something that's scary, you put it on there because that's what people are going to tune in for. And yet the reality is that those things don't happen very often. They are unusual. They're not the things that happen every day, but our brains have to be, you know, we have to be able to go, okay, I need to, I need to be able to see, is this something I should be afraid of or not? And then, you know, those things we should be afraid of, we're meant to take action. So again, fear is a good thing. It motivates us to action. But if we don't take action, we just continue to ponder those fears. They lay in our subconscious and they, they make us even more anxious. What are your biggest hopes right now for public life? Well, we live in such an interesting time right now. You know, I think about, uh, you know, every day in the news, I mean, Trump is the headlines everywhere. You know, no matter what you're looking at, some, something relates to, to President Trump and whether you, you know, I know people who uh, love his policies. I don't know very many people who say, yeah, I, I think he's an amazing man of character. I've not heard a lot of people say that. You usually have to be an evangelical me- megachurch pastor say something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you know, I, but, but I know folks who are fiscal conservatives who say, hey, I appreciate the reduction in the corporate tax rates, or I appreciate the elimination of some of the red tape that's happening or whatever. So there are people who say, hey, I agree with what some of the stuff he's done, but I disagree with the person. But, you know, I think, here's what I think. I think there's a pendulum that swings back and forth, you know, as we all know. And, um, you know, right now the pendulum has swung in a certain direction when it comes to fear of other people, when it comes to fear. I mean, some of the things that I, I feel most concerned about have to do with things like the refugee program, how we're treating immigrants, how we treat people who are different from ourselves, the rise in hate that's happened, you know, Char- Charlottesville and some of those kind of things that have happened with, with the alt-right, you know, rising up and, and, uh, and I, my hope is that, and we're seeing this with guns and gun violence too. My hope is that, you know, in response to our fears, we rise up and say, you know what, we want to be our best selves. We want to be people who actually love the vulnerable. We want to be people who are standing up for those who can't speak up for themselves. We're going to try to find ways to address, you know, our fears of guns and gun violence and in, in, in ways that, you know, that actually are legitimate solutions, not just the things that, you know, that make the headlines from time to time. So I, I really feel like, even out of this period of great uncertainty that we're in today, that we're going to come out over the next few years better and stronger than we've been before. I mean, I just think we tend to react to uncertainty or threats and 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 hopefully move towards being our best selves. And I, I, I believe that actually is, is in the process of happening. I, I look at all the young people who are out, you know, speaking out about guns and whether, you know, the solutions on guns, on guns are more complex than what, uh, than what people often want to say in a, you know, in a soundbite. But but the fact that we're dealing with this and saying something has to be done, let's figure out the solution. And I think the solution is going to be figured out by bringing people, reasonable people on both sides of the debate together and saying, okay, let's come up with some plans. Let's not just keep talking past each other. Let's figure out a plan to deal with this and to address this. So, so our children are not afraid to go to school because, you know, because some kid might bring a gun to school. Adam, you've written a great book. And I think that people that care about 
uh, that kind of vision for public life would do well to read it and reflect on it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks so much for, for just taking some time to talk with me. Scott, it's been a pleasure. You've been a great interview and I really appreciate your, your questions and your thoughtfulness. And I want to mention too, for churches or book clubs, book clubs or Bible studies that might be interested in using this, we also have a DVD with, uh, we took the five sections of the book and I have a 15 minute video related to each of those sections. I interviewed a neuroscientist from Vanderbilt. I have a Fortune 100 CEO talking about fear in the business world. I have a counselor, my wife, who struggles with anxiety. She's on one of these sessions. Uh, a United Methodist Bishop, Bishop Will Willimon, is on one of them. And so there's a leader's guide and a DVD for small groups, book clubs, those kind of things. There's a children's component and a children's book to help children with fear and a youth component as well. And, and then, of course, the trade book, Unafraid. So um, I'm hoping people will check it out and, and that they might find it to be uh, you know, truly helpful in their lives in living unafraid. Yeah, and I'll link to all that stuff in the show notes. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Hey, Scott, have a great day. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Adam for being on the podcast. Please check out his book, Unafraid. It's a great read. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.